I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. This week, we're diving into something I, and to be honest, most people, struggle to understand. I'm talking about blockchain technology. The most common example these days is Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrencies you may have heard of. But lately, blockchain has been adapted for other applications, including journalism. To tackle this, we've brought in CJR's digital editor, Noska Renner, to speak with writer and programmer Paul Ford about the confusing world of blockchain and how it's being used in media. Hopefully, by the end of the conversation, we have at least a slightly better understanding of the topic. So today we have Paul Ford, the co-founder of Postlight Media and writer of the legendary piece, What is Code, in Bloomberg, which won a National Magazine Award. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. I should say that Postlight is just Postlight. You put a media on the end. I, it's just my tendency as somebody who works That's in the right. media criticism business to think that everything is media. Apologies. No, of, course. <laughs> of course, don't apologize. No, I, you know, I'm looking, I'm like brick wall media. I'm like just looking around me and everything. Can, you can put media on the end of just about anything. We, we had you in today because of this piece that you published in Bloomberg Business Week about blockchain. The title of the piece is Bitcoin is Ridiculous, Blockchain is Dangerous. Well, the print title was like a little more laid back. That was the web title. But yes, um, I, both of those ideas are in the piece. I'm also a little bit fascinated, too. So it's not, it wasn't simply me hitting Bitcoin with a stick. Yeah. And I mean, just because Bitcoin is ridiculous doesn't mean that we don't have to take it seriously since the rest of the world is apparently taking it seriously. The publishing industry is ridiculous. Like so many things we do, if you look at them and, and look at them under the hood, you're like, oh, no, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but we live with them every day. So, I, you know, I think that's kind of what the piece is about. Well, so like, before we dive into the sort of tech details of it, what's the reaction to your piece been? I've been really curious because it is the first thing that I've seen that's, that's been more critical of blockchain in a public way as a bubble. Well, yeah, I think, look, the way that people have reacted is there's always like the first initial reaction wave online where they see the title and they yell at you, and that's okay. And then there have been interesting pieces of feedback from people who made lots of money from Bitcoin and uh, think I'm an idiot. And then people who don't believe that I knew about it in the, in, you know, around 2009, 2010. Uh, but then after that, it kind of caught a wave, and, and everyone's like, yeah, I see it. I get where this guy is coming from. And, um, you know, I think people are also always really happy to see something, like an actual essay about something where it's somebody's written and thought a lot and just kind of organized it into a certain sequence. And, and so a lot of good feedback that way. And after, I'm, I was, when I saw that they'd given it that headline, I was bracing myself, but not too bad overall. And then... I had a Bitcoin company come by uh, to my business uh, yesterday, and they looked at the piece and been like, yeah, it's a totally sensible point of view. Mm-hmm. Sorry, blockchain company. Mm. Um, so I think that 
there's a large number of people in the space who are not completely passionate but are trying to figure it out and know that something's going on and also know that things come and go. And for them, they were like, that is a reasonable point of view. For people who are absolutely convinced that the world economy must be destroyed tomorrow and this is the only thing that will do it and it must work, uh, my lack of enthusiasm is a little bit like, you know, me saying I'm an atheist. Like, it's just I, I don't believe enough. And so they're going to be a little angry with me. Mm -hmm. More of an and agnostic, I, maybe. Yeah. And I did get some angry tweets from someone whose handle was Galt's girl, like from Atlas Shrugged. So, <laughs> you know, there's always that. So let's just dig into the piece a little bit. So you do the obligatory... I think you call it hand-waving metaphorical description of blockchain. Can you give us like a 30-second version of that? Sure. My editor actually put the note in, please explain blockchain. <laughs> um, so actually Bitcoin and blockchain. I mean, the simplest way is that every time somebody does a transaction with Bitcoin, let's not even worry about how they do it. Something else has to look at those transactions and go, yeah, that's valid. And the upshot of all of this, sort of all these decentralized computers looking at different transactions, me giving you a dollar, you giving me a dollar to my special wallet, um, when they see those transactions, they kind of lump them together and they give them a special code. And so they lump them into a block of transactions and they give them the special code. And then the next set of transactions comes along and they lump them together and they give them a special code, except the special code also factors in all the codes that came before in all the transactions that in blocks that came before and that way it's that's when they say it's immutable that's what they mean like you have this ledger of things that happened transactions in bitcoin or it could be all sorts of stuff but that's how bitcoin works you have this ledger of things that happen that can't be changed or is almost prohibitively hard to change it's written uh, in stone as, as close as you can get with computers, right? And that is, so you, blocks of transactions in a chain is a blockchain, or blocks of, of immutable things in a chain is a blockchain. And so your criticism of it in the piece or your insight about it in the piece, that it's a bubble comes from the fact that while it's um, sort of a, de you call it decentralized, which means that you know, people all around the world have to confirm that they've seen the transaction rather than like, for instance, a centralized bank confirming the transaction. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Everybody sees this as kind of like a promise, like a, you know, we throw around democratization a lot. Can you talk about why you don't see it as a good thing? I just, it's not even good or bad. It's just experience. Like I was just around in the 90s and I was very young and there were an enormous number of promises made about technology and about how it would change everything. And it actually turns out, you know, I mean, the razor you want to apply here is, does that suggest that something that will happen will be really different from everything that's happened over the last couple thousand of years, right? So, so far, we know that people like money. Um, mm -hmm. They kind of are cool with central banks, at least in their day-to-day. -day. They don't have a lot of say in it. And that's what makes something like Bitcoin interesting is that it suddenly large numbers of people get to say that they want to opt out of fiat currency. But this, I just like, I've seen bubbles before and they, they look a lot like this and they feel like this and the people who show up 
don't understand the thing that they're saying is really different. Like, I mean, why it's so amazing, uh, but they know that they're in it and they want to make the money. You know, I just remember being at a diner in like 98 and hearing, I was a true internet nerd and hearing somebody behind me go, internet time, it's like seven times faster than regular time. And he'd read that somewhere and, and he meant it, that somehow something on the internet was seven times faster, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just this piece of arbitrary nonsense that had lodged in this guy's head. And I just remember going like, huh, that's weird because that's not real. Like, there's no such thing. And he had picked that up and was telling somebody else. And, and you know, there was, and in the piece I talk about, literally in the bookshelves, in the, in, the, in the bookstores in the 90s, there were books with titles like Dow 36,000, up to like Dow 100,000 for the Dow Industrial Average. Like, it was, you get into this utopian market mindset, and I just, it feels just like that. I could be totally wrong. It could stabilize or... A set of technologies could show up to stabilize the entire set of blockchain exchanges, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. But experience has shown me that the excitement happens, an implosion occurs, and then the true believers stick around and build the world that they really want. And then that is usually when we all get in trouble. So what does this have to do with the public understanding of it? Because, you know, from the media criticism point of view, like we wanted to have you on partially because there's this problem that we have even in our office of people talking about blockchain and not really understanding it. And then we're, we as journalists aren't really able to translate it to our readers. And, you know, in the piece, you talk about a little bit about metaphors and about like leaning on this ATM metaphor to explain blockchain. Okay. So there's, there's two things to know. First of all, like I'm 20 years in, I'm a pretty serious programmer and technologist. I have a software company and I get the basics, but this is a whole crazy world. It is really, really hard to keep up. It's hard to know what's real or not. And the actual um, parts of it that make it go are very complicated. It's like, you know, this various kinds of hashing algorithms and, you know, your Merkle trees and sort of like we're down to the level of individual algorithms, which is actually not where people in software spend most of their time. It's where computer scientists spend their time. And so... It's hard. Like, it's like explaining physics. It's like explaining anything. You're, you're in a world of, of mathematical abstractions, which are being turned into concrete software and then deployed around the world. And then people are pointing at them and saying, look, it's an economy. And that's like a magic little twist in the human brain where somebody along the line said, this can function as a currency. Let's see if people opt in and treat it as one. And so there's a psychologically complicated aspect to this, and there is a technologically complicated aspect. It is all very new, and the math and science underneath it are not trivial, and they're not widely understood. Mm-hmm. So, like, you've got to give journalists a break here. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Like, yeah, no, this is actually hard. Like, it's, it's actually genuinely hard. I avoided it for years. I had pretty complete information about what Bitcoin was in... Uh, you know, early days when I was reading about it, I remember reading articles around it in 2010. Um, and there had been, you know, I know what hashing algorithms are, and it's easy for me to figure out what Merkle trees do, and like, you know, all that stuff. It doesn't, uh, but it doesn't really fit together organically in your head. And there's no, there's no experience of it aside from doing some transactions. That's the same as I made a simple HTML web page and put it up on the web, which is hard, but it's not. It didn't used to be that hard. Well, so that's, 
I mean, just to take that comparison to, uh, since you talk about the dot-com bubble and, and all of that stuff, I was thinking about these metaphors that we used to rely on, like the super internet superhighway is like my favorite one. <laughs> so back then we were kind of relying on these metaphors, but then it seems like the public came to a greater understanding of it over time. Well, nobody took, well, nobody took superhighway too seriously, but yes, <laughs> um, you had a lot of money showing up, a lot of young people who really believed, and certain things that had enormous impact, right? So, and, and could afford TV ads. So suddenly Yahoo is all over the place and, and it's got a directory and you can get your daily news there and your, your dad's getting online. And, and you know, it's, it's like, it got big and nobody could quite tell how big. And, the, you know, the signal event actually of that first dot-com boom was when Netscape had its IPO. It was the largest single-day rise in history, something like that. It was like one of those financial stats where people were like, whoa! And it just blasted out as a gold rush. So here you have this like web browser company goes out into the world, and the market says, hell yeah, here we go. <laughs> this is an enabling technology. And so everything that the market typically does, like everybody shows up and is like, I need to do that too. That looks great. I like all that money. And and so everybody just sort of gathered and started to make startup after startup after startup. And, you know, they would do things like, how do we make a web-based Microsoft Word? You know, which later now we think of Google Docs, but at the time that was really quite mm-hmm. a hustle to pull off. Uh, I remember working on a textile sh- management application where it was like, you know, we're going to, we're going to ship textiles and how do people place orders in the vast global textile market. So, I mean, you know, public, and then the media got in and started to publish and that itself was like, oh, I can get my media when I wake up by, you know, using America online. And so that really created, there's a lot of gravity or I guess momentum is probably better. I turned there was the sense of like, I better get in on this. But so we're starting to see this with blockchain, right? Like that there are various markets and industries that are starting to use blockchain, including journalism, but it sort of gets to the other side of blockchain besides the economic side, which is, you know, the second half of your piece is about the sort of cultural or societal value of blockchain. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I mean, there's some interesting technologies here at play. And so typically you have a centralized database where you put stuff, or even if it's not like purely centralized, the idea is... I have, if somebody gives me their information on the web, um, or they post a tweet, or they do whatever, I'm going to put it somewhere, and I'm going to save it, and I'm going to have control over that database, and we might erase things from that database. Like, there's just a sense of... um, Impermanence, maybe? Well, or just that we're managing that data, right? Like, if you want to delete your tweet, you get to delete your tweet. And yes, it does end up feeling impermanent. Although I would argue that's less from people deleting tweets and more from like whole websites just disappear one day or, or they update them and there's, there's no, the URLs don't go anywhere anymore because nobody bothers. Link um, rot. Exactly, right? So, so there's all that going on. And then you have this new set of technologies that doesn't completely work, but is really interesting and isn't completely revolutionary but it's also sort of surprising in the way that it, it kind of creates marketplaces and incentives for people to add their computing power to the overall network. And that are these distributed databases of, in 
Bitcoin's case, transactions, but it could be media, it could be all kinds of stuff. And so there's all these sort of new blockchains where people are saying, you know, leave your computer on, run this software, and we'll have a million copies of this. And it'll be kind of like a marketplace and kind of like a a hard drive and kind of like a, a this and kind of like a that. And so that's very different from these single points of control or the sense that like one company or one organization would own something. And then a lot of times they come with voting built in. So, you know, if it, you can change the way the system runs um, and you can, uh, based on different kinds of consensus, and it's all automated and it's all software, which actually is a key point. It really is just all software. Like if you can understand software, you actually can understand this stuff. It's just sort of started to get this weird, almost mythic glow around it, but it, it's computers doing things. And then so on the sort of journalism blockchain in particular. So this is what I really, you know, you you had this piece in in Bloomberg and you know, you touch a little bit on what the benefits of that could be for journalism and you mention uh, Maria Busios's site Popula which is launching based on on Civil which is a publishing platform based on blockchain. She in her like Medium post that sort of explains her thinking behind Popula, she talks about the use of blockchain to do just this, what you've just been saying about creating a very verified, we have all these problems with fake news that can, like now we can have this extremely verified and uh, sort of popularly agreed upon set of writers and pieces of writing. And I wondered, you know, I wondered what you think about this. I, I know that you're friends with Maria, you mentioned that in the Bloomberg piece, but you know, there's this kind of despair at the end of your Bloomberg piece about this weird and bubble potential bubble economic thing. And then it has this great opportunity for, um, you know, verification and that kind of thing. And why do those two sides of it have to be paired together? And that's kind of how I feel about civil, maybe, is that it's based on trying to solve the business model of journalism. But the real benefit that it sounds like it has from everybody who's writing about civil has to do with this other side of it, has to do with the verification side of it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, see, this is the thing. You're neither right nor wrong. Who the hell knows? Right? <laughs> like, here's how I assess Popula. Well, I wouldn't bet against Maria Bastillas. Bastillas. I mean, she is like, really smart, really funny, and I've known her for years. So she has a great sense for media, and she's been a successful entrepreneur in the past. So if she's bought in, sure, why not? You know, as I talk to people in this space and they reach out even after the article came out, it feels like everybody's actually there more than like an awful lot of people I talk to are like, yeah, yeah, you got to put a little money into this, see what happens. You know, this looks really interesting. They're not all saying this is the only possible future that will happen. Some of the serious crypto people are, and I think the media, when it covers Bitcoin and blockchain stuff, favors absolutists just like it you know neglects mainstream protestantism because evangelicals and megachurches are so much more interesting but i think there's an awful lot of people who are who read the papers and went oh god i mean and then they saw bitcoin happening and they went god dude, these people are treating it like money huh. <laughs> i didn't think that was going to happen well God, if it's going we got to get in we got to figure it out and you know maria's ethos is such that she wants, if this is going to go, if this is going to happen, she wants to make sure that people who are typically neglected, uh, meaning content creators, not publishers, but mm-hmm. content creators, have a way to participate and benefit. So I see it as a prototype 
of that? Like, what would happen if the people with direct participation in the new marketplace were the creators as opposed to having their work bundled up by the publishers who then decide who gets paid what? Just to jump in and explain a little bit. So Civil, the platform allows writers to be paid in money, but also in cryptocurrency such that the number of likes that they get on the article or the, the, the commenting system becomes valued. So you end up making more money and you can make money as a commenter. So it's the, the idea is to provide an economic incentive for an engaged uh, readership. That's exactly right, right? Like this is this is a new pattern. This is the, the the thing they're experimenting with is this these signals will come into the system and we will adjust the system accordingly. And once we make that adjustment, we will then make it impossible to back that out. There will be a, a true record of it. And so far, human beings have decided that this can translate in their head to um, a kind of currency, and that you can exchange that currency for other other currencies. And so this is a this is a new human space for like an arts organization, you know, giant banks have been financializing everything forever and and so we're kind of all learning to think like banks now, which I, maybe that's good for publishing. Turning now to the News of the Week, I'm joined by my colleagues, John Alsup and Alex Neeson. John, good to have you back. Thank you. Alex, always good to see you. Hey. It's been another crazy week of news pushing the conversation forward in a bunch of different directions. But amid all that, a few publications are notably taking a step back to cast a critical eye at work they've done in the past. Last week, the New York Times debuted a new feature called Overlooked, in which it published obituaries of women who didn't make the pages of the paper of record at the time of their death. And then this week, National Geographic has a new issue out examining the magazine's history with race and more specifically its failures in its coverage of racial issues in the U.S. and around the world. So, Alex, we had these couple examples arriving kind of back to back. What do you think of what these publications are doing? I mean, I think it's definitely interesting um, and a long time coming that both of these publications, the New York Times and Nat Geo, are finally dealing with this thing. These are problems that we've all known about, these sort of elephants in the room. So it's about time that they've come out and really uh, acknowledged that they existed. Um, in the case of the New York Times with the obituaries, I think that's something that perhaps was a bit less known. Um, if you don't read the obits page regularly, it's not something that you might have noticed. But when you look at the names of the women who were overlooked at the times of their deaths, it's it's both uh, shocking, some of the people, and also kind of typical when you take a step back and you're like, well, of course. I'm thinking of people like Ida B. Wells. Yeah, um, or Siv Sylvia Plath. It's not surprising on some level that these publications with more than 100 years of history have records that are out of step with things we would expect today when it comes to gender or race. Yeah. I mean, I think, Alex, you nailed it when you said that it was, you know, there were some shocking omissions, particularly from this Times obituary feature. Uh, Pete, you mentioned Sylvia Plath. I mean, I think that the uh, 
I think the sort of head of the uh, Times obit department, if I remember correctly, said that the standard for having an obituary in the Times was newsworthiness, and that to an extent, the sort of uh, continuing lack of gender equality in that section reflects a society that is structured in a way where men are more likely to be newsworthy or do newsworthy things consistently than women. Um, I mean, maybe there's some truth in that, but I find this kind of 80-20 ratio that's been talked about to be still surprising. Yeah, in the actual overlooked piece, they mentioned that Over the past two years, just over 20% of the obituaries in the Times have been of women. Right. And, and, you know, Sylvia Plath, for instance, clearly did and said and and died in a very newsworthy way. Um, So, you know, I think it's I think history is important. I think symbolism is important, particularly um, at a political moment in America where both symbolism and history are kind of bandied around as very kind of malleable living uh, qualities. But at the same time, I think that these things have to go beyond symbolism. It's great for the New York Times obituary department to be rectifying wrongs of the past, at least in a small way, and drawing attention to them. It's not okay if that then becomes a kind of newsroom-wide, well, we did this, and so we don't really have harder questions to answer about our current levels of gender and uh, ethnic representation. We don't have questions to answer about our ongoing coverage. I don't think there's any suggestion it is a replacement for that, but I just think whenever we draw attention to these symbolic um, efforts, particularly around things like gender and race, we just need to be really careful that it's not a substitute for looking forward. So I just want to push back a little bit on this, the assertion that this 80-20 split is reflective of men being more likely to have accomplished things that we then deem newsworthy enough to wind up in the New York Times. I think that completely ignores the power structures at play here and who works at the New York Times and a larger system of patriarchy, which gets to decide what is newsworthiness and what accomplishments are worth pointing out. People like Sylvia Plath, people like Ida B. Wells, I was completely unsurprised, like scandalized, scandalized, but unsurprised that she wasn't given an obituary at the time. She was extremely accomplished. And like, there was no question. It didn't take us years and years after she died to recognize that or to acknowledge that. It just took the New York Times forever to acknowledge that. Um, And so I think You mentioned this a bit, John, looking at who works at the New York Times, white men historically and still. Those are the people who are in charge making decisions. And the paper has always, despite its branding as like a liberal progressive newspaper, has always reflected societal attitudes that devalue women, that devalue especially women of color um, and their accomplishments. And that dictates coverage. And so I think the idea that, well, part of this can be explained because uh, there weren't as many women doing things that were going to be deemed newsworthiness. I think that that is kind of misogynistic. Yeah, it took a woman of color as an editor in the obit section to even make this project come into existence. And you point out that it's not just the New York Times. This is an issue that's across the industry. Mm -hmm. We talk about diversity all the time, yet the numbers don't reflect improvement in that area. We've kind of stagnated when it comes to diversity numbers in newsrooms, and it's even worse when you get to top levels of publications. I want to focus on how each of these publications actually accomplished the task they set out. Um, The Times, as we mentioned, this idea was birthed by a new editor in the obit section and then had other newsroom figures join in. National Geographic actually brought in an outside historian, John Edwin Mason, who is a professor at the University of Virginia, to sort of act as an ombudsman of the paper's past coverage. I think it's really interesting that they hired a historian who doesn't work for the magazine and who has no real incentive to go easy on them. I think that's really interesting. To me, what I my first thought on, you know, looking at how the two publications have handled a similar issue is that 
you know, hiring someone from the outside, you release a measure of control. And so he's going to do the, the historian does the review and is going to come up with these findings and make these comments that you have less control over. Whereas at the New York Times, this was an internal review. And so there's still this uh, measure of being able to control uh, the narrative to be able to discuss the pitfalls in a particular way to decide again who they're going to amplify among the many people who uh, have are likely to have been missed and so to me those uh, that sort of differentiates how uh, they've handled the projects. I agree. I also would say I think that you I mean you could make a case that working at a publication now and commenting on something that happened 30, 40, you know, longer periods of time ago does kind of give you an outside perspective. I mean, unless you have the kind of company motto branded into your skin, you're that loyal to it, you are going to be able to look back and say, in the past, our forebears here messed things up. I do think an outside perspective lends even more clarity and independence to those kind of assessments. But I think the broader question here clearly is about, well, how do we judge our own efforts right now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we get outside people to come in and, and, you know, do some assessment of, uh, of the kind of ongoing problems around these issues that exist in newsrooms. And as you know, I think I've mentioned, Alex, every time I've come on your survey that you did with uh, Karen and Meg here at CJR looking at um, sexual harassment in newsrooms, clearly there is still a really long way to go before newsrooms open themselves up as they exist now to the same kind of scrutiny they're willing to put on their past. Yeah, it's a positive conversation to be having. Uh, we'll see what it means for those publications and others going forward. Okay, from looks back to a focus on some of those who are going to be shaping the future of not just publications, but also the conversations we're having. We're recording this on Wednesday, hours after thousands of high school students and middle school and elementary students around the country walked out of class to recognize the 17 people that were killed in Parkland, Florida, and to call for action from adults. The coverage after that Parkland shooting has largely focused on teenagers and student voices, which is something that's a little bit unusual for national politics reporters uh, to have to work with. Alex, you have a history in education reporting, often speaking to students. So I'm interested in your perspective on how these reporters who aren't as familiar dealing with children, how they've done. I mean, I think the bulk of the voices that we've heard coming out of Parkland, um, and, you know, this has been written about and and pointed out before. These are students who have had some measure of media training. A lot of the students, you know, took journalism classes in in school, and so that has put them in a position um, to be ready to answer the sorts of questions that they've been getting from reporters. I think, on the whole, some of the questions that we've seen are about, you know, related to ethics, about reaching out to students, Um, about which students to put the microphone in front of, particularly with like cable news and uh, broadcast news, like who do we put the cameras in front of? And there have been some interesting debates about how do we responsibly reach out to students who have experienced a trauma, who are wading into explicitly political debates that adults can't really get, you know, can't often get a handle on. And so how do we do that in a responsible way for a kid? I mean, I think that folks have done a pretty good job in that they've largely let the students lead. It hasn't felt um, heavy on press sort of talking down to students. It's sort of been the opposite where we're giving students an opportunity to say what they want to say sort of without direction. What are the rules on that? If you're talking to a 16-year-old high school sophomore, for a reporter, do you need to get parent consent? I think, I mean, context really matters here. 
typically for your sort of run-of-the-mill education story, if you're going to be entering a school or going on campus, there's a couple of different ways that go about it. Every district has a communications flack. You can always reach out to them and they can put you in touch with students. More often, education reporters will have sources inside the school already, teachers most of the time, and they get access to students that way. You can also just stand outside and once a kid walks out the building, um, you can approach them in that way. What you do as far as reaching out to parents for permission depends on uh, what you're writing about and how old the kids are. For elementary students, always get a parental permission, kind of no matter what you want to write about. For middle school students, uh, I think in my experience, you kind of err on the side of caution and you tend to look for parental permission uh, before you interview them on the record. But once kids become teenagers around, you know, like 13, 14 and up, then it's sort of you have a little bit more leeway to kind of use your judgment. When a kid is in high school, I have interviewed high school students uh, without parental permission. Um, If you're interviewing them about a really sensitive topic, then sometimes it's a good idea just in good faith to reach out to the parents. And often you're going to want to talk to their parents anyways. So it really depends. Yeah, I mean, this, I think, also brings an older conversation about media literacy back to the forefront. I've you know, long been an advocate, as I'm sure you know, many people have been, of uh, improved like media literacy education as a compulsory part of school curricula. And I've always seen that in terms of you know, teaching kids to critically engage with different sources, teaching kids where news comes from, how news is put together, to make them sort of smarter consumers of news. I mean, clearly, that's really important, more so than ever in the current climate. But I think this also brings another aspect to it, and that's that education could also include, you know, teaching kids how to behave as potential sources, teaching kids their rights, teaching kids, you know, what journalists are likely to be looking for, uh, making kids basically just fundamentally understand that if they say something to a journalist, unless they explicitly say it's off the record, you know, that's going to be a matter of public record going forward. And, you know, not having sort of a familiarity with reporters. It's not just a thing for kids. I'm sure we've all interviewed adults who do not really have experience dealing with journalists who have been surprised when they've been quoted, even though you thought the whole thing was kind of a pretty mundane on the record conversation. So I think if you sort of, you know, teach kids in school, these are how journalists operate. If you ever end up as a subject of something, here is how you should sort of behave with it. I think that could be really useful, not just for kids who have been thrust into the media spotlight for more or less unfortunate reasons, as with Parkland. But, you know, for those kids turning into adults and dealing with journalists throughout their lives. The other side of this that I'm interested in is how the adults have responded to those teen voices. Obviously, the topic at hand for a lot of students speaking out has been gun control. And we've seen some pushback from opponents of gun control saying, well, these are just teenagers. They're not mature enough to understand the issues. And we shouldn't be elevating them to the position of political advocate or pundit in some cases. So as a former teacher of teenagers, uh, which I did in a previous career, that bothers me because teenagers, especially obviously these Parkland students, do know what they're talking about. And I think this is a larger issue about us as media consumers and do we give credence to these younger voices. This is a, a an argument that I'm endlessly frustrated by, the idea that teenagers, but even even kids younger than that, are these like sentient beings that don't experience the world around them. The notion, I, I think it sort of contradicts 
criticisms that teenagers all, often get. Uh, we group them into this like huge, expansive label, millennials, and then we criticize them for not being informed, for not paying attention. And then when they become in really uh, engaged, then we also criticize them and say, well, what you, you don't even really know what you're talking about. And so the two just don't make sense. And I think what's striking is uh, if you look at education reporting in any major school district, particularly in places where issues like gun violence are super prevalent, it is immediately clear that these kids do know what they're talking about and that they leave the house every day and the world is happening around them and, and they're not passive in, in their experience there. They're like actively impacted by a lot of these issues and it's a real disservice to exclude their voices or to suggest that their voices are somehow less credible than ours. Yeah, that's been one of the effects that I hope comes out of this is something that education reporters know and hopefully national reporters and consumers of national news now are realizing is that you shouldn't condescend to teenagers. No, and I think it's also really important to think about which teenagers we're offering voices to and and just to be really aware that, you know, there are teenagers who have been making appeals for adults to take action on gun violence all over the country for long before Parkland. And this is not to... um, talk down on the efforts that have uh, were born in the in the wake of the Parkland tragedy but there have been other tragedies like that and when you think about like the racial differences the socioeconomic differences of the teenagers who have been given this national platform versus those who have not i th- i think that that's something that that the press does have control over and we decide what stories to pursue and we decide we make choices about which kids to to approach for interviews and i think that we can shift that that imbalance if we're really focused on it That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Nausicaa Renner and Paul Ford for guiding us through the world of blockchain, and also my colleagues John Ossup and Alex Neeson for being here. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.